to see you tonight. Uh, I, uh, I want to wish you a happy Valentine's Day. So uh, there, that's done. And uh, it's not really a religious church holiday or anything like that, but uh, it's kind of nice to focus on that a little bit. Related to that, I don't think anything is more thrilling in human experience, especially when you're a lot young, to uh, more thrilling than receiving a, a love letter from someone. A note, that sort of thing, cards, you dwell on every word, you make sure you don't miss the slightest nuance of, of meaning and what the other person is saying. I don't know if you're aware of this, but there is one particular chapter in the Bible that is uh, called, has been called, uh, the greatest love letter ever written, and that is 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We hear it read in weddings a lot. We're familiar at least with verses 4 to 7 of that chapter. It's so beautiful, so poetic. And uh, as it happens, today is Valentine's Day, and it's that very fact that prompted me, although I've been studying for Habakkuk now for a while, it prompted me yesterday to consider teaching from 1 Corinthians chapter 13 tonight, more specifically those verses, verses 4 to 7, and the great description of love that we, we find there just would fit the day that we think rightly about love, that we define love biblically. And that thought about jumping into 1 Corinthians 13 tonight, verses 4 to 7, and delaying Habakkuk for a week, that prompted me to start thinking about, well, why don't we look at love more deeply in Scripture and actually look at it from a grammatical standpoint first, which means before I knew it, I was down this path this morning and noon today, realizing that this is going to take two to three minutes tonight. <laughs> so I threw up a white surrender flag to that idea, and uh, that's what we're going to do before we start the book of Habakkuk. Tonight, we're going to take a Valentine's Day detour. That sounds like a Hallmark movie title or what? <laughs> Valentine's Day detour. Tonight's contribution to this detour is to look at some grammar, primary words for love in Scripture, in particular, the primary love, first of all, for love in the Old Testament, how it's expressed in Hebrew. There is a primary word in the Old Testament that is translated love, it's in, from the ahav, Word group, you gave the Hebrew word there, starting reading that from right to left, of course, starts with that little letter Aleph. You'll remember that in our study of Psalm 119. The first eight verses began all with the letter Aleph, reading from right to left. It's Ahav. It's just consonants in Hebrew. They don't have vowels. Many years later, uh, people added vowel pointings to the Hebrew. It's little symbols, little dots and little lines and dashes and things like that. So when you learn Hebrew in seminary, you actually learn it that way with the vowel pointings. And so the most common 
way of pronouncing this would be I have. The B on the end has almost more of a V, V sound, I have. This verb, I have, occurs in the Old Testament more than 200, 208 times. It's at least 208 times. There is a noun form of it, uh, ahaba, and that occurs 40 times. So primarily it occurs in this verb form, to love. And that verb, I have, is peculiar to Hebrew. There are other Semitic languages besides Hebrew, and those other Semitic languages have different words than I have for love. This term in Hebrew, I have, is thought to derive from a root that means something like uh, to breathe or to pant. So it's come to mean that, it came to mean that, to pant after something and then just to broaden that idea, to desire something. And thus you can see the connection to the idea of loving something, to pursue it, to desire it, to pant after it, to, to love it. Now it's found in many books of Scripture, but just to focus on the prophets, a couple of the prophets here for a moment, in particular the prophet Jeremiah, he wrote uh, uh, often about God's love in his book, especially his love for his chosen people. Now we know that uh, God's chosen people is the nation of Israel. He set his affection on them, but unfortunately, Uh, they were unfaithful back to the Lord. And so we know that sad story. And Jeremiah wrote about that as well. He honestly described how they were unfaithful to the Lord that loved them so much. They were unfaithful in the sense of committing spiritual adultery. They went after false gods. They went after pagan idols. The nation was consistently that way, over and over, unfaithful to their God that loved them and made a covenant of love with them. Unfaithful, despite all the blessings that he gave to Israel, despite his constant goodness to him, to them, and his constant uh, loving kindness, faithful love, another Hebrew word, hesed. Well, it is that reality that makes God's declaration then in Jeremiah 31 verse 3 so amazing. So here's one of the uses. I have loved you with an everlasting love. He's saying that to a people, despite all they had done, all their unfaithfulness, all their sin, all their chasing after other gods, God still had them, loved them, and would love them forever. This is God's Old Testament love of his people, and it's amazing. An everlasting love directed toward a totally undeserving, unworthy people. So if you think about that, he didn't just go forward tolerating the nation of Israel. He went forward with them, loving them. Just out of the passion of his own own nature, his own holy nature. So in Jeremiah, this I have then, you can see how in the Old Testament, this love is signifying love that is freely given. It's love given when there's no sense of of obligation. That means the concept of his love then connects to what we call his grace. So how do you define grace? Well, it's this idea of unmerited favor. So that's true whether you're talking about the Old Testament or New Testament. It's God's unmerited 
favor. That's his grace. So God's love is connected to that. Grace is God's favor to to sinners. So God's love is freely given to sinners. And so it's it's not pulled out of him or it's not prompted out of him. It's not drawn out of him. Uh, by the virtues of the people that he's loving. It wasn't a group of attractive people that prompted that love. And so that is his love as we see it in Jeremiah. Jeremiah is not the only prophet. Hosea, you have a sample of that as well. Hosea, the Ahav group, the word group is commonly used there to indicate uh, the love of a man and wife. God's I'll have for his people, but it's the same word about love of a man for a woman, a woman for a man. It includes the whole idea of sexual love, their sexual love. And so it's considered something very beautiful. It's a very important love. And therefore, it became a very useful illustration to Hosea and for the other writers of the Old Testament, this love between a man and a woman They would use that as an illustration to stress then the intimacy that existed in the relationship that God had with his people. There was intimacy there, just like in a marriage. Now, Hosea is the first prophet uh, and the most outstanding example, at least we would say, of a prophet who was using that imagery. He chose to use that imagery in his writings to say something about God's love of his people, his everlasting love, as Jeremiah put it. Now, you'll remember something, though, about Hosea and his marriage. He clearly had a very unhappy marriage. His wife, his, her name was Gomer. I think that's where the problem started right there. I don't know. You know, names meant something back then, so get rid of Gomer out of your mind from Andy Griffith you know, or something. But, uh, Gomer, she was unfaithful to him. Uh, after they were married. Now, we studied the book of Hosea here many, several years ago here on Wednesday night, so it's on the website if you want to do a study of Hosea. But she was unfaithful to them even after he had married her, and that caused Hosea all kinds of anguish, pain, because he still loved her. Even when she became a slave and she was an adulteress and became a slave, Still, he loved her, and we find this statement in Hosea 3, verses 2 and 3, where it says that he, he bought her back out of slavery, took her back for, the, for a sum of money and some grain. You have it there. So I bought her for myself for 15 shekels of silver and a homer, a homer for Gomer. How about that? Anyway, a homer and a half of barley. And then I said to her, you shall stay with me for many days. You shall not play the harlot anymore, nor shall you have a man, so I will be toward you, faithful to you. I will love you. It's amazing. What an example. Despite everything, Hosea's love remained pure. Hosea's love remained strong. It remained constant. He didn't condone her unfaithfulness or anything like that. It's just that he loved her. Ahav, that Hebrew word. Here's a good quote from a commentator named T.H. Robinson. He was a man possessed and dominated by his love, talking about Hosea, obviously. 
It went to the very roots of his being, and so fully did it absorb him that no sin or folly on her part could shake it. It kindled in his life. It was a consuming fire shut up in his bones, which no rejection could weaken and no suffering quench. In all the world's literature, there is no record of human love like this. And that's true of Hosea and his wife, Gomer. Well, that is a a constant love, and it was Hosea's constant love for his unworthy wife. And in that, Hosea saw something, a picture. He saw an illustration in that. This is what God does for his people. And so God used him, God prompted him to see that and to write about that. God's love for an unholy people, an unworthy people. If it was possible for Hosea's love to remain pure and strong, here's the analogy, and that despite all that Gomer had done to him, then it was very certain, not just possible, but certain that God's love would not waver. It was constant. It was deep. His love will not change toward his people no matter how they might sin, not if they're his people. And sin his people did, and sin his people do. That never changes God's love for his people. And people struggle with that still today. How could God love me? Look at my performance. Look at my record. Look at my sin. I am not worthy of God's love. And that's absolutely true. When somebody says that to me, I never try to talk them out of it. (laughs) Oh, no, you're a lot better than you think you are. Just look around. Cut yourself some slack. You are unworthy. So am I. But that's how God loves. It's constant. It's deep. doesn't change. So Hosea speaks of a, of a nation's conduct in the same way that he would speak about his wife's conduct, adultery or harlotry. And he does that on several occasions in that, that letter. Living out, living in this tragic marriage, but yet that brought to him the repulsiveness of spiritual adultery. As repulsive as literal adultery is, spiritual adultery is repulsive. So he saw with horror how unfaithfulness looks to God. Hosea was grieved over his own marriage, but he grieved as well just over the state of the nation. How the nation refused to respond to God's love as they should have. And he constantly then uses that language as of unfaithfulness to express that. But like I said, he, he saw also something else with equal clarity, that though Israel was steadily destroying herself with her unfaithfulness, her harlotry, spiritual harlotry, she was not destroying God's love. She couldn't because of the nature of God's love. It's firm. It's sure. It's steadfast. Continuing on no matter what happens. Here's a great statement from Hosea chapter 2, a couple of verses. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak kindly to her. And it will come about in that day, declares the Lord, that you will call me Ishi. Just so you'll know, Ishi means husband. And will no longer call me Bali. And that means owner. You're going to see me for who I am. I am a faithful husband to you. So all of that and many more verses we could look at in the Old Testament that uses this word group, we can, 
we can summarize a thought, then a very important thought about God's Old Testament love is this. It's unmerited. It's unmerited. God's choice and love of Israel was not based upon anything that, he, that was good in them. They had a future, but it was not because of them. It was not because of what he saw that they would become. He didn't run his divine videotape ahead, you know, or DVD ahead. No, it was based upon what he knew about himself, and it was based upon what he knew he would do. Said differently, God loves not because the objects of his love are upright, not because the objects of his love are attractive, not because the objects of his love are winsome. It's just because of his nature. That's who he is. He is a loving God. So in short, God's love is rooted firmly just in his personal character. And that's so important to us when we don't know anything else. We can say, but I know him. I know his character. Here's what Scripture says about him. We can conclude that from the Old Testament. By the way, we can conclude something else about his love in the Old Testament, that it does involve discipline. He disciplines those he loves. He loves. Proverbs 3 says that. My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord, Yahweh, or loathe his reproof. For whom Yahweh loves, he reproves, even as a father corrects the son in whom he delights. That's a sign of his love. His love is everlasting, but he disciplines those he loves. It's a correction that's not, it's not out of anger. It's a correction to shape and to point and to correct and to help. It's a good thing. So that's the Old Testament. So let's talk about the New Testament. We're more familiar with Greek words, obviously, but there are several of them. So I know many of you have studied all this. The Greek language is, is very rich in words of love. I mean, English is not like that. Just think about it. We have one word for love, and we use it for everything. We love the Lord. We love our family. Love my wife. I love our church. I love pizza, especially pizza in Italy. I love bacon, especially crispy bacon. Same word, right? Doesn't mean my wife and bacon are are the same. I mean, they're close, but they're not the same. We can use love to represent anything that we want. Oh, I love that. I love to play golf, you know. I love going to coffee shops. Anything that we want to achieve, you know, I, I love pursuing this, and so on. But Greek's not like that. Greek has several different words. So that did give the Greeks a, a lot more precision than what we have in English. And as a side thought, by the way, don't ever think that, um, that the Greek language is inherently more able to convey what God wanted to say. In other words, God chose Greek because he was looking around for some language to use, and he found Greek because it was so precise, and it has almost some mystical power to it. And so he's, he's concluding that I need Greek to convey what I want to say. That's not true. God could have used any language. He would have accommodated his truth to the language they would choose to use. He could have written the New Testament in any other language, you know. 
And then theologians would have to study those languages, you know, what it was written in, to get the precise meaning of what God meant through the human writer that he used. But in his sovereignty, he did choose Greek to reveal the more complete explanation of what the new covenant would be under, in Christ. We're not under the old covenant with Moses. That covenant is done. There are some timeless moral principles in the Old Testament that continue because they existed before the Mosaic Covenant and in the Mosaic Covenant and after the Mosaic Covenant. But the Mosaic Covenant itself, we don't put ourselves under that. That's very important to understand. And when it came time to explain now more about what the new covenant is in Christ, he chose Greek. He chose Greek to explain the mystery of the church. And the doctrines that are important to the church family. So we have to study Greek. When it comes to the topic of love, then yes, there are some Greek terms that we need to look at. And as we do, keep in mind that there is some overlap between them and among the different Greek terms for love. But one of them is storge, storge. Now that's a word that they would use to refer to just natural love or a family love. So it's the love that binds a particular group of people together naturally, like a family. The child and the parent, they would use storge to talk about that kind of love, or the parent for a child. In ancient times, storge had a much broader use than just the family, or even what we consider a nuclear family. They would use a storge to talk about uh, aunts and uncles and grandparents and, and many other kinds of relatives. But again, it all goes back to that idea of a natural affection. The term even went beyond family. It would be the term they would use for a, a love of country. Uh, that's storge. But I think the familial reference, the family reference, was just the basic characteristic of this word group and this term. The objects of this kind of love are familiar to one another, see? It's a familial love, a family love. So it carries the idea of affection, a natural affection. And natural affection is important. This is a wonderful word. My, all my kids have been here this weekend, and so that was just wonderful. Uh, some left today. Some are still here, you know. And so we, we love that. We love the family affection that we enjoy with one another. Life wouldn't be as enjoyable without it. Civilized life could hardly even exist without storge. It's a wonderful part of life. Interesting though, storge is never found in the New Testament. Not found one time. I'm just giving you some Greek here tonight. There is a word that comes closest to it. It's the, it's the adjective, it's the negative version of the adjective in this word group. It's there on your screen. Uh, astorgos. The a part, the first, makes it negative, not this. You find it in a couple of places, Romans 1.31 and 2 Timothy 3.3. 3. It talks about their uh, of people, how the lost world will be unloving. So not not storge, there will be no natural affection. They abandon the natural affection. The King James tra- translates it that way in Romans one thirty one. A people without natural affection, unloving. ESV translates it heartless. So we should conclude that storge 
though, the positive version of it is important, it's necessary, but still it's not the distinctive kind of Christian love. There's another word, eros. That is basically what we would think of as romantic love. It's what people today have in mind when they think of love, especially on Valentine's Day. Eros, romantic love, as well sexual love is included in that term. It's used to refer to affections other than romantic love, though. But this is the the main meaning. This is the typical meaning. This is the one that gives it its particular character. Two things are especially characteristic of eros. Eros is, unlike what we said about ahav, ahav in the Old Testament, love of the unworthy, eros is not like that. Eros is love of the worthy, at least worthy from in the eyes of the beholder. Worthy person or the, there's something about this that attracts me. So there is attraction involved in eros. It doesn't mean, doesn't necessarily mean that the object is inherently worthy, but we have that expression. You know, beauty, attraction is in the eye of the beholder. And so eros is the kind of love that is directed at someone that the beholder has determined this person is, is attractive to me. This person intrigues me. There's something about this person that I'm drawn to. That would be eros. But something else about eros, it has a sense of possession with it. Eros, even in extreme form, demands possession, longs for possession. And you can understand how that is included in the idea of romantic love. You don't, if you meet a young man and he says, you know, I'm just heads over heels about that woman, that girl. But I don't really want to marry her. I don't really care who marries her. You wouldn't put those thoughts together. You know, head over heels? Yes, I, I want to make her my own. It's that idea of possession. She would say the same thing. I want to make him my own. Not in the sense of ownership, though some go too far with that. It's just in that word. But it does have a a wide variety of uses. In the most extreme form of it, it is very crude. Crude lust. At the other extreme, though, it, it is just a lofty passion, a pure passion. And it's got all kinds of responses between those two extremes. It might refer to love among people, but it might also refer to love of things. But whatever the object, even if it's a thing, the implication is that thing is worthy. There's something about that thing that attracts me. And there's, a, there's this desire to want to have that. That possession is still there, even with things. So this word, like storge, though, is not found in the Bible not found in the New Testament. But it is a very important word in Greek literature. Now, just because it's not found in the New Testament and just because it has some crude expressions, it doesn't mean it's a bad word or necessarily a bad thing. Eros can be something very beautiful. Eros can be something that's a very valuable part of our lives. Romantic love is that. At its best, at least, it's wonderful, it's pure, it's lofty. So don't be critical of this kind of love. Don't put it down. The Bible just doesn't specifically use the term. But there is a sense in which the Bible, in places, takes it for granted. And sometimes puts the concept of 
eros in very explicit words, and that's what you find in the Song of Solomon. The Song of Solomon is not an allegory that's pointing to God's love of His people. It is actually what it reads like it is, and that is love between a man and a woman, and a very sensual love that's expressed sometimes. And so love between the sexes is good. It's a beautiful part of normal living for God's people. That's what you find in the Song of Solomon. But still, though Eros has its place, it can be praiseworthy, still not the idea of what we think of as Christian love. How about the third word, philea? Well, that's the love of friendship. It's, the, it's a, a man or a woman and a love that they have for their they're friends. So whereas eros is more of a private love between two people because of the attraction, friendship is, you could say, is a public love then. It can exist between any number of people. And this too is something that's very valuable in life. It'd be impossible. I mean, it'd be possible to live without friends, but we don't want to do that. It'd be a very impoverished existence to say the least, but once again, if we're looking for the essential New Testament idea of love, we're still going to conclude that it's not philea, even though it is found in the New Testament. The noun form is found only once in New Testament writings. It's in James chapter 4, verse 4, the, the noun form. And there it says, friendship, it's this word, with the world and is hostility toward God. But it's the, it's the idea of friendship. It's the verb form that's found the most. Phileo is the verb form. It's found 25 times. And their adjective, philos, is found 29 times. So in Scripture, this term is not used to refer to God's attitude toward men, His love toward men. It's not the primary term used for our love back toward God, although it is found that way a couple of times in the Gospel of John. It's not the primary term of our love for other believers, though it can be used for that. There's another word for that. It's not the next one. I just, we threw this one in here. Uh, epithumia is not a, a word you would normally throw into a study like this, but I, I think it, it has a, we at least ought to know what it means, this fourth word. We should take note of it. It's a term in Scripture that refers to a very strong desire. In Greek writings, it was often used, and most often used, actually, to refer to sexual desire. And so it can denote a very passionate love. It's the idea of passion. Sometimes in the New Testament, it has a positive meaning. We find it in Luke 22, verse 15. When Jesus spoke, he used this word, epithumia, about his strong desire that he had to eat Passover with his disciples. This is the word he used. And so it's sort of that, you can see the bridge to love. He was saying, I'd love to have a meal, the Passover meal, with my disciples. But he chose this word, strong desire. Paul used it in Philippians 1.23 about his longing to depart this life. I just desire to part, depart this life and be with the Lord. I would love to depart this life and go to heaven. Same idea there. But it's this word. But those are the exceptions. Most of the time in the New Testament... It is translated lust. It is used that way in 1 John 2.16 about the world, you know, the lust of the flesh and the lust, uh, the lust of the eyes. In Colossians 3.5, it's translated evil desire. 
So just suffice it to say that, that this term, and by the way, James 1.14 uses this word and connects it to, to every sin. All sin is connected to lust in some way. Lust means it's something I must have or I cannot be happy. I have to have it. It's a ruling desire, an inordinate desire, as King James might say. So just suffice it to say that this term cannot be regarded as significant when it comes to trying to understand love, though, in the New Testament. But this fifth word is agape. We're more familiar with just saying it agape. Agape or agape. It is an interesting feature of the New Testament that even though many words, as we've seen, existed in the Greek language that they could have used, that God would have inspired the writers to use, it's this word, agape. Now, it was not a new word. It wasn't that it was created for the New Testament. It was a word that did exist. It just wasn't a very important one in their culture. It just wasn't very common. Hardly used. Very rarely used before the New Testament. But you get to the New Testament and it is frequently used. This is the characteristic New Testament word, <clears throat> almost the only New Testament word, but not, you know, gave you some others, the phileo word group, but almost the only one used for love. That phileo word group, you know, adjectives, verbs, nouns, all together is about 55 times. The occurrences of, of just the verb form of this word, which is agapao. The verb form, just, just that, 320 times in the New Testament. And the noun, more, as well. So it's very intriguing. Why, why would God inspire Christians to use a less common word for love? It's because there's a new idea about love associated with it. There's a new idea about the essential meaning of what love is. So they took this term and they gave it that deeper meaning. Perhaps a good way to understand agape is to contrast it with the idea conveyed then by Eros. As we've seen, Eros had those two primary characteristics. It's a love of the attractive, a love of the what's deemed worthy, and it's a love that desires to possess. Agape is in contrast with both of those points. It is not a love of the worthy. It's a love of the unworthy, or at least it includes that. It, it is not a love that desires to possess. In fact, if you want a good synonym for agape love, it is this idea of seeking to give. A good synonym is giving. This is a love that's quite irrespective of the merit of the person or the object. It's a love that seeks to give. A good synonym is giving, and that's exactly what you find in the famous verse, John 3.16. For God so loved, agapao, the world, that he gave his only son. Notice the action that's inherent in that verb. It didn't say that God so loved the world that he just set up in heaven and just emoted some fuzzy feelings for all the, all the people. No, he loved and therefore he gave. That's not eros. So agape, you could say, is love of the unlovable. It's a love that's unselfish. 
And it is a love that is going to be expressed in action, in giving in some way, giving encouragement through words and loving words or through loving actions. So basically, agape is God's kind of love. It's his own love. Most profoundly manifested in his son, in the life of Christ, Scripture says, who came to seek and to save that which was lost. Uh, Romans 5.8 just came to mind again that I love that verse because it says that God commended his love for us, his agape for us, and that while we were yet sinners, he sent Christ to die for us. So all agape is of God. That's 1 John 4, 7. Let us love one another for love, agape, is from God. That's where it's from. And it's from him because that's what he is. 1 John 4, verse 8 and verse 16. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is this. He's agape. We've come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. He says it again. And the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. So agape, think about this, it doesn't originate, even though we're expressing it toward others and toward God, it does not originate in us. It actually originates in God, who works it through us because he's the one that's agape. So God dwells in us, his redeemed people, and because of that and that alone, we are able to love agapao in the sense of agape. So when we consider the manifestation of the divine love in our hearts and life, then we're we're dealing with the distinction between what we are able to do on our own and what we are capable of only by God's grace working in us. We might conjure up just in human will and based on human affections some storge, family love, and so forth, and eros, but not agape. It takes God himself who is agape working in us to manifest this. And that grammatical study then brings us full circle to 1 Corinthians 13. Which prompted all this for me to say tonight. It just got longer and bigger. Now, you can turn to 1 Corinthians 13. I encourage you to do that. Familiar words to us. You know, even the lost world has heard some of this verbiage. 1 Corinthians 13. Like I always say, if you're having trouble finding it, it's right after 1 Corinthians 12. The Apostle Paul is the inspired writer here, and what he's describing is then how, in a more practical way, how it is that God, when he works this in us, since that's what he is, how he he permeates everyday life in practical ways, our thoughts, our dispositions, he permeates all that with his agape, his own nature. In other words, we can look at 1 Corinthians 13 and determine... If we're living these things out, we can diagnose something. We can determine who or what is directing us. Is it God working in us to express this, or are we just motivated by self? Is it God's grace, or is it just nature as a human being that's motivating something? In other words, is it agape, or is it eros? Is it agape, or is it storge? 
So though the other words for love may have a place in our thinking and even in our lives, we have to keep this one fact in mind. Even lost people can express and enjoy storge. Even lost people can express phileo, philea, or eros. But only someone who's a follower of Christ, only a regenerate person, only a saved believer can truly live out agape because it is only God who can work that kind of love in and through someone. And then, if that's there, then the other types of love that are good, storge, eros, and so forth, they take on a whole new meaning for the Christian because of agape. Put that in other terms today, Valentine's Day, and what we might seek to celebrate in some way always has a more profound meaning for us as believers than the world than it does for the world. We understand marriage and relationships in a way that the world does not. The storge, the philea, all of it can be richer because it springs from this foundation of agape. So the person who knows Christ and is walking in the Spirit, seeking to obey the Lord, can love his family. That person can love his or her friends in a way that unbelievers just can't understand. And yes, the Christian's experience of romantic love is different than that which the world knows because the eros, you see, is guided by agape. So again, in short, the way a man loves a woman or the way a woman loves a man is different than that which is taught by the world for believers. So let's look at 1 Corinthians 13, 14. We'll at least start it tonight. Here we find that a truly loving person is going, to res- is going to live and behave a certain way. There are going to be things that he will do, she will do, and he or she will not do. Certain things because of the kind of person that God is making this individual into. Now, there are 15 of these descriptions here of agape love, how they're fleshed out practically. And grammatically in the Greek, what's amazing is they're written as verbs. That's not what you see in English. Love is patient. Dig down deep in your grammar, way, way down there. What is that in English? Patient. Come on, take a risk. What is it? It's what? Uh, No, direct objects can only follow action verbs, just so you'll know. It comes after a state of being verbs. So what is it? There you go. It's an adjective, and because it comes after... Where's our door price? We we forgot it tonight. Uh, Yeah, if it comes after a state of being verb, uh, like is, am, are, was, were, those kind of things... uh, then it's, a, it's an adjective. It's called a predicate adjective. So you won't find these after then action verbs. That's all free. I love that stuff. It's an adjective. It's not a verb. I mean, we understand verbs. You're doing something. Isn't it interesting? Because it, it has action involved. See, that's the inherent nature of agape love. 
So these are the essential marks of the Christian life, these 15 verbs. The qualities of love that we find here are brought, are brought forth in probably the most poetic way in Scripture, as I said to you at the beginning. This, this whole chapter, this is a love letter, but especially these verses. There's, it's superb in what's said here. It's powerful. It's beautiful. And what we find here then are the top priorities for every Christian, first of all, in a local church, how we are to get along with one another, what's going to guide us. If, what, if these qualities are absent here, the church is going to fail, it's going to disintegrate at some point. doesn't matter how large it is. Same is true of a family or a marriage. These need to be there, always pursuing them, repenting of when we fail. Something else you need to know grammatically, they're all in the present tense. They're all in the present tense. And present tense is denoting actions and attitudes which are to be habitual. They are to be continuous. So ingrained in us that they're just gradually uh, becoming more expressed because we're constantly seeking to repeat them in our lives. Now, they sort of sound ordinary. If you take the beautiful construction of the language out, Patient, kind, jealous. I mean, they're just words, ordinary words, but they may sound ordinary. They might even sound obvious. Well, of course, I mean, you need to have, you need to be patient with your wife, you know. They are probably the most difficult habits to cultivate, these 15 right here. So we're going to study them over the next study or so. This is not an exhaustive study of agape love, but we definitely have here what's important for us to know. And he's writing to Corinth. Corinth was a church full of problems, so really what you find here is Paul's description of what was wrong with the church in Corinth. If you go back and study Corinthians, they had all kinds of problems. They were, they were going to, to court against one another, taking each other to, to court, filing lawsuits against one another in the church. I mean, that's a great, great church environment, isn't it? There was immorality amongst the people of the church. They were abusing the Lord's table when they would have communion. Uh, women were abandoning the distinction between the sexes. There were these prideful and selfish attitudes toward the spiritual gifts that they were exercising. I mean, it was, it was, a, it was a difficult church with a lot of problems. And so that's influencing this chapter. I mean, here's the answer for all that in Corinth. That's one way you could summarize what we find here, but I'll tell you a better way to summarize what we find here. What you find here in this section is a description of Christ himself. You should read it and study it that way. Take out the word love every time and put in his name. Verse 4, Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. Jesus is not jealous. Jesus does not brag. He's not arrogant. He does not act unbecomingly and so forth. He is agape love. So he lives these, he lived these out perfectly when he's here on earth and still does as the ruling Lord today. You can really think of these as proofs of Christian love, evidences of Christian love. So we'll have time maybe just for the first one tonight. Love is patient. Love is patient. It's misspelled in my notes, so I'm glad it's spelled correctly on your slide there. Patient. Mine says patisant. Love is patisant. P-A-T-I-S-E-N-T. And I don't know what that means. This is a pretty important way for Paul to begin. 
I mean, this is an attribute of God himself that we find in the Old Testament as well. Exodus 34, verse 6. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and exclaimed, The Lord, this is Yahweh, Yahweh, God, compassionate and gracious. And in Hebrew, it's worded this way, slow to anger. That's the concept of patient. He's patient. So you find it in the law, you find it in the prophets, you find it in the Psalms over and over. You find it echoed again in the New Testament by the apostles. This gracious assurance that our God is like this. He is slow to anger, which means he is patient. Now, the Greek term that's used here is a word uh, macrothume, but uh, thume is this idea of of passion. But uh, the word with a prefix on it means long-suffering. It's that idea, long-suffering. It's the opposite of being short-tempered. The person who doesn't understand love, then, is quick to get angry, short-tempered about things. They have a short fuse. But not this person, not agape love. Agape love does not have a short fuse. Now, back in the good old days when there were no safety laws, did you guys play with firecrackers like I did? Okay. I mean, we did a lot of things. But one of the things we did was uh, throw them at one another. But, um, But the other thing we did, sometimes the firecrackers, when you pull them apart and stuff like that, they wouldn't have a fuse. So what do you do with those? Well, you light them anyway to see who's the bravest amongst you and who's the fastest brain-hand coordination that you can take the match or the lighter or whatever and touch it to it and throw it quickly enough without losing a finger. I mean, it's a fun game. Just don't want my grandson to know anything about this, okay, or my wife to know anything about this. Yeah, that was fun. But that's an illustration of this. I mean, there are people who are like firecrackers, you know, with no fuses or very short fuse, a little stub. Everything becomes worthy of anger. So this is a word that says, yeah, the, the agape person has a really long fuse. It's a fuse that just wraps around the earth a few times, you know. Slow to anger. And remember what I said earlier, it's a verb. We don't have a word in English, but in, in, in Greek it is love is, agape love is patienting someone. That puts it in a verb form. We don't have that in a verb form in English. It, it's patienting someone. And this is a word for patience in respect to persons. There's another word later about things and events, but this is respect to persons. Not respect to things. That's a different Greek word. So the idea is that love manifests then self-restraint when there's provoking going on. And it's very slow to take offense at something. It has no desire to retaliate. There's this patient acceptance of injuries without any kind of desire that I want to pay back something. No matter the conduct of others, it just doesn't lose its temper. This demonstrates a a willingness to take someone's unpleasantness and their, their unpleasant traits, to take those things in stride. We get tested on this with people. And since it means being slow to anger, then this kind of love 
doesn't revile when being reviled. And that's what uh, is said in, in 1 Peter 2.22, by the way, you know, about Christ. You know, it said that he, uh, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. And before that, it says he's left you an example of how to live, how to suffer even the right way. So this is a very important Greek term. It's, it's characteristically a biblical word because this word doesn't occur in classical Greek at all. So I gave you some others that occur in classical Greek about, you know, storge, eros, but not in the Bible. This is interesting because it occurs in the New Testament, but not in classical Greek. And very seldom, even in Koine Greek, which is what the New Testament is written in, very seldom outside the New Testament. This is very much a, a biblical word, a characteristically Christian word. In fact, so much so that it's describing a virtue that the Greeks did not consider a virtue. That's why they didn't have this word. Patient, that's a terrible thing to be. That's the way they thought. I mean, to the Greek, the, you know, the, the one to respect, I mean, the big man, he's the one that if he's offended, well, he makes the the score even. He takes up for himself. He goes out for vengeance. That's a man. Not according to God. This love bears patiently with the one doing wrong, not rendering evil, striving to do what Romans 12.21 says. Remember that verse, Romans 12.21, that just says, overcome evil with good. Don't be overcome by their evil. Don't let what they do overcome you, and don't be overcome by doing the same thing back, but overcome it with good. In Ephesians 4.32, it's got that great verse at the end of chapter 4 where it says in 31, it says, put off anger and malice and bitterness and all those kind of things, hatred, put that off, but put on, verse 32, kindness, gentleness, forgiveness, it is regretfully true that this trait, in many ways, is not a common one today with people. Whether we're talking about the church or the home sometimes. But if you think about it, all that it means, it could very well be the most important and truest test of the sincerity of, our, of the profession of our faith, the most sincerest test of our maturity, of how patient we are. What happens many times in life is that things that are so trivial become unpardonable. You know? The trivial things we get upset about. And it doesn't make any sense for believers because just think about all that we have been forgiven of by the Lord and how patient He is toward us. I mean, we, we ought to be a patient kind of person and a forgiving person. When we think about that, what God is to us, and just think about your own sanctification, how God is, is so patient with you and with me, and how much trouble we have conforming ourselves to biblical standards, much less being impatient and angry with other people. Why should we be impatient if others are not what we want them to be or what we, ought, we think they should be? when we look at ourselves. The clear fact is, according to this verse, the believer is to be a long-suffering person with all people.
So we're going to stop there as far as our study goes and kind of jump to some discussion. And I realize I threw all the guys off tonight by standing up here, didn't I, Steve? Yes, he's nodding. He's been running around trying to fix things because I stood up here because we were all set up for Wednesday nights to be down there. Sorry about that. It's a habit. But uh, let's think about this. Just uh, even though I'm way up here, way, way far away from you, you're still going to have to answer some questions, okay? So let's think about this. Now, we saw this in the Old Testament. We saw that one characteristic of God's Old Testament love, a have, a have, that word, is that it was unmerited. So the question is, is God's love today for people, for us, is it still the same way? There's the question. Okay, question number one. Is it still true today? Okay, you've got to say more than yes. Right answer, yes. So what New Testament passages come to mind? See, that really pushes you. Think hard now. I see the steam coming out, so I know you're thinking. And I hear the wheels. Yes. Romans 5, 8, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So there wasn't anything coming back from you to Jesus when he died for you. <laughs> you know, you didn't even exist yet. It's a good one. But that's cheating because I mentioned that one earlier. You're opportunistic. How about another one? That's a good verse. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I mean, that's saying something about that's true about the Lord. And so, you know, he didn't operate in the Old Testament on a, on a basis of, of no merit. But once the new covenant started, yeah, I'm changing how I do that. You know, uh, you got to earn my affection now. Nope. Good one. Anybody else? And I know you, it takes you time to find them and think of them, and we don't have all the time in the world, but, okay, what does that say? All right, now that gets a point because it's on my next slide. Okay, so, uh, yes, there's one. That word grace, it's a gift. And you back up in that, that chapter, you know, and it's like, you know, we're, 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 we're born spiritually dead, Ephesians, you know, 2, uh, walking according to the course of the world, under the power of Satan and all that, but God, you know. So, so there wasn't anything about us that was attracting him. Everything about us would be what would repulse him, but God. He intervened and set his affection, saved people. First John, you know, it's not just First John chapter 4 that says something about God's love, but yeah, it says many, many places in First John, this kind of love. I couldn't help but think of just the statements about God's sovereignty in Ephesians chapter 1 as well, so I just put that on my own little list here. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. So there's the emphasis, it's his will. You know, he says that later in Romans 9, you know, it's not based on the will of the one who runs or doesn't want run, you know. It's not based upon worthiness, you know, and he uses Jacob and Esau as an example there. 
He loved Jacob, not Esau. Why? It was God's choice. He has his will. And it's to the praise of the glory of his grace, just like Ephesians 2 about grace. It's grace's unmerited favor, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. That's Christ. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. It's not a stingy grace. It's a superabounding grace is the way he puts it in Romans chapter 5. Titus 3 comes to mind. Um, we're not saved on the basis of any deeds we have done. I think it's Titus 3, 5. No works, no deeds, no merit. And it's sad that we somehow come to believe that. You're right, I can't be saved, I need Christ. And then to do what the Galatians were doing after that, you know, trying to then keep our salvation by our works, keep God's accepting us by being good, and if I'm not good, he won't accept me anymore. He'll kick me out of the family, cut me out of the will. I mean, we can start to think that way. Satan loves for us to think that way. I mean, I'm not excusing sin. We take it seriously. But the reality is still, we are far more sinful than we know that we are, but we are far more loved than we think we are, far more accepted than we think we are by God. So, yes, it's still true today. That was question number one. Uh, something else I said about God's love in the Old Testament, that uh, he disciplines those he loves. So there's a good question I could ask. Is that still true today? Does God's love still involve disciplining his people? Okay, you got that part, I know. But the second part, <laughs> okay, this is, this is an easy one. I mean, this, is, this is like, you know, you got to have one of those or two on the exam to keep you having hope, right? I mean, if they're all hard... And you lose hope. So you got a little hope. I, I, might be, I might pass. Yeah, Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12 starts off by quoting that statement, Proverbs. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom the Father does not discipline? But if you're without discipline of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children, not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? <clears throat> they disciplined us for a short time. In other words, we are only <clears throat> under their discipline for a certain number of years. And they did, they did what seemed best to them. You know, They did the best they could. They didn't always do it the right way. They didn't always, sometimes too strict, sometimes too gracious, you know. But He disciplines us for our good so that we may share His holiness. <clears throat> it's not punishment. It's discipline. It's correction because He loves us. And all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful. We don't like it when it happens. And I got... A lot of those corrections along the way from my parents, and I went to one of the old-timey schools where they still did it in the school and still did it in high school. I spent many hours in the principal's office getting swats, and they always called the, uh, the coaches in to do it, and I hated that because they were trying to prove something. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joy, but sorrow, but yet to those who've been trained by its training, 
Afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. The whole point is, it started with that first verse, those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines. If there's never any correction, it begs a very serious question. There may not be a relationship there. So yes, still true today. Last question. It's Valentine's Day. Our culture agrees with everything I said, right? I mean, if the answer is yes, then we can just end it right there. But if not, how does our culture define love? Yes, ma'am. Say it again. You must affirm everything. In other words, if you affirm everything, then I love you. So it's, it's, it, it, you have to earn it, okay, in some way. Action. Yeah, there's some behavior, you know. I mean, you know, yeah, and so husbands try to punt to that sometimes. You know, they've been a, maybe not so loving for 364 days of the year, but it's Valentine's Day, you know. So he's in there washing the dishes or something, you know. You know there's some action. So, I mean, biblical love has action, but the world, to the world, the action is, for some, it's all that and nothing else. Yeah. If I make somebody else happy, it's love, making other people happy. And the reverse of that, if that person makes me happy, then I, you know, it's love, which is earned. Yeah, right? Love has no boundaries. Yeah. Yeah. In worldly love, there, there's no... Yeah, there's no truth involved. You could even say it that way. Love and truth don't, don't mix together. Yeah. Okay, there's the main one I was waiting for, actually. Emotions, feelings, nothing more than... Anyway, uh, emotions, feelings. Yeah, that's a big thing. So I, I gave you, a, based on that, here's a good definition of it. Love is a feeling you feel when you feel you're going to have a feeling that you've never felt before. Now, see, I think that's helpful to put it in those terms, you know. But think of the way we, we, we talk about love. It's you fall into it, right? I mean, it's like a hole in the ground. You're just going along and I can't help it. I fell into it. I fell into love. And then it's like a tree. You know, you can fall out of it at some point. Sorry, you know, I, I f- fell out of it. That gets ingrained into our thinking. Those kind of feelings, emotions. Love's a feeling you feel. When you feel, you felt a feeling that you never felt before. Uh, I think in some ways, love is even considered a weakness by some in the world. No doubt in our culture, it's always been this true. Uh, love is put in, in terms of only physical contact or maybe a sexual conquest, that that's love. No, no commitment's not necessary in the world's definition of love. You know, it's just a, a conquest. Now, if you're old enough, you'll remember this one. I mean, girls had posters of it when I was in high school on their walls because of the movie that came out. Love means never having to say you're sorry. Yeah. 
That was a famous from the movie, uh, what was that? Love something. Love story. Where do I begin? I got a song for everything here tonight. But uh, yeah, that was a big thing, a big line in the movie. Love means never having to say you're sorry. That is terrible. Horrible. So yeah, the culture is all confused on that. A feeling, just a behavior, nothing else. But biblically, agape love is giving, and it's something more profound than just trying to make somebody happy for the moment. It's, it is giving and action, but it's to meet needs to sacrifice for others. Agape love then ends up being not a feeling first. It's a choice first. I don't want to denigrate feelings. I think feelings are wonderful, you know. And I'm not saying, you know, feelings are totally stripped away from my agape love toward my wife. But it's more than that. It is a choice. You can choose to agapao somebody whether they're attracted or not to you. Well, obviously, we could have, we don't, we're out of time, but we could have talked about how this ought to impact marriage. That was the fourth question. Especially when you get to the husbands, the role of the husbands, men. In Ephesians chapter 5, it is this word. I mean, we're not going to say that the Bible would never tell women that they need to, to love their, their husbands. But in the two passages, Colossians and Ephesians, the directions for marriage... It commands the husband to love his wife. It doesn't command the wife to love her husband. It never even commands the man to, be the, to lead his wife. That command is not there. By implication in Scripture in 1 Corinthians 11, yes, the husband is to be the leader. That's just who he is as, as created by a man, created by God. But in those passages, he's not commanded to that, do that. In Ephesians, he's commanded to love, and three times. Why did God have to say it three times? The women want to answer that, but they're not. Okay. We have to hear it that many times. And in 1 Peter, the other one, I said Colossians, I think, but I meant 1 Peter. 1 Peter 3, especially... The command there is to understand your wife, dwell with her according to understanding, knowledge, and honor her. The leadership is to flow out of that. That's why it's not commanded. If you're, if you're loving with agape love and you're seeking to understand your wife and dwell with her that way, then spiritual leadership will happen. And a godly woman would be overjoyed to follow that. So yeah, agape love is very important for marriage. And of course, yes, women should, should love their husbands. Titus 2, it tells the older women, teach the younger women how to love their husbands and their children. So it's understood, but it's just interesting where the command, the force of the command is toward husbands there. We need to take it very seriously as husbands, agape love. Let's pray. Father, thank you for just getting us started on this path. We need to hear teaching about love periodically, so we're reminded of what your expectations are of us and what the standard is. So, Lord, help us to 
to be sobered by the reality that th- these are the marks of, of, of being saved, what we find in 1 Corinthians 13, the proof of our fellowship with you because you are agape love. So enable us to do that. I do pray for anyone here who can't say that I, I know the love of God. I've come to follow Christ as my Savior, and so that love that He has towards sinners is for me now. If they can't say that, Lord, bring them to the place of humbly crying out to you to say, please forgive me, a hopeless sinner, and I will follow you as my Lord. In our Savior's name, amen.